All right. Our second reading. It's in your bulletins. Okay. I'm reading out of uh, my new favorite translation. It's called the uh, ERV, the Easy Reading Version. I find it easy to read and also very clear. And I think clarity in coming to the scriptures is really, really uh, important. Now, there's a word in here that I'm reading uh, this morning. It's called Areopagus. And the Areopagus... Well, probably we could uh, ask our resident scholar back there about the Areopagus, but I think you might want to think of it as a Supreme Court that was made up of sort of university professors and philosophers, okay? And it was in, in the city of Athens. So these are the smartest people in the empire at that time. So let's read it, beginning at verse 22. Then Paul stood up before the meeting of the Areopagus Council and said, Men of Athens... Everything I see here tells me you are very religious. I was going through your city and I saw the things you worship. I found an altar that had these words written on it to an unknown God. You worship a God that you don't know. This is the God that I want to tell you about. He is the God who made the whole world and everything in it. He is the Lord of the land and the sky He does not live in temples built by human hands. He is the one who gives people life, breath, and everything else they need. He does not need any help from us. He has everything he needs. God began by making one man. And from him, he made all of the different people who live everywhere in the world. He decided exactly when and where they would live. God wanted people to look for him, and perhaps in searching all around for him, they would find him. But he is not far from any of us. It is through him that we are able to live, to do what we do, and to be who we are. As your own poets have said, we all come from him. That's right. We all come from God. So you must not think that he is like Something people imagine or make, he is not made of gold or silver or stone. In the past, people did not understand God and he overlooked this. But now, he is telling everyone in the world to change and to turn to him. He has decided on a day when he will judge all the people in the world in a way that is fair. To do this, he will use a man he chose long ago. And he has proved to everyone that this is the man to do it. He proved it by raising him from the dead. When the people heard about Jesus being raised from the dead, some of them laughed. But others said, we will hear more about this from you later. So Paul left the council meeting But some of the people joined with Paul and became believers. Among these were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus Council, a woman named Damaris, and some others. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this uh, testimony from the early days of the church, and we thank you for uh, Brother Paul's uh, boldness and willingness to stand before the Areopagus and and to teach them what they didn't know. And Lord, I pray that 
uh, as we gather here under the name of Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our ears and move our hearts so that we receive your word and respond to your word in a way that's appropriate for us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's left Palestine. He's left Asia. He's left the homeland of the people of God. He's made it all the way to Athens, which is uh, the ancient capital of the Greek Empire. It's no longer the capital of the empire. We're now in the Roman Empire. But Athens is still very important. It's where all of the smart people are. It's where the artists are. It's where the writers are. You might want to think of it as sort of as the Paris of the ancient world, filled with culture, filled with educated people. It was also filled with idols and with temples. And the Apostle Paul uh, is upset by this. This is from our reading last week. He's upset by the presence of so many alternatives to the true God. Even though they were a cultured people, they were involved in all kinds of superstition. And so now Paul, who typically would come into a city and first preach in a synagogue, and after he was done preaching in a synagogue, he'd go preach in the marketplaces. Now he's ascended to the Supreme Court in the city of Athens. He's talking to the people who are the most educated people in the empire. These are the least likely people to become believers in Jesus Christ if we are to understand uh, the pattern of human conversion. Okay, So Paul has gone to these people. Last week we read that he had encountered two groups of philosophers called the Epicureans and the Stoics. They certainly would have been represented on this council. And before this council, Paul boldly brings the message of the gospel. It's interesting uh, that the normal pattern of evangelism is Paul going to the synagogue, Paul going to people who are already people of God, who already believe in God, who already have the uh, Old Testament scriptures, but don't yet understand about Jesus. And so for those people, Paul simply needs to draw the connection between what the prophet said and what in fact happened in Jerusalem uh, uh, around the life of Jesus. But now he's encountering people, wow, they're like, they're like in outer space. These are people who don't believe anything about the true God. They're smart people. Okay. You can't, you can't say they're, they're dumb, but they don't know anything about the Old Testament revelation. And so what they have remaining to them is what we call natural revelation. God reveals himself through the words of the prophets, through the scriptures, and through the life of Jesus Christ. But God also reveals himself just in the heavens, and in the earth, and in the beauty of creation, and the order of creation. Any rational person looking at the order of creation would conclude, you know, there was someone very smart behind this whole thing who brought this thing into being. Okay, We call that natural revelation. And so even the pagans know enough about God by natural revelation to be responsible to having had a desire to pursue this God. We'll talk about that a little later when we read from Romans chapter 1. What I want to do right now is break down into about seven points the outline of the sermon lecture that Paul gives 
before the Areopagus. Okay, so now we don't know how long Paul would have talked before the Areopagus. Maybe, I don't know, an hour. He, He would have had a long amount of time. But the writer of the Acts of the Apostles reduces his lengthy speech to a very brief outline, okay? So I just want to pick up each piece of this outline, uh, and if you have your bulletins in front of you, that'll be helpful to you to follow along with me as we go through the major points of what Paul says to people who don't know anything about the real God, okay? This is, in a certain sense, a little message about how we can bring the gospel to people who are just totally outside of the faith. So, Let's begin at verse 24. Paul has said, you worship a God that you don't know. This is the God that I want to tell you about. And then he begins to tell them about this God. Number one, he is the God who made the whole world and everything in it. He is the God who made the whole world and everything in it. You know, the gospel begins with the doctrine of creation. Okay, If we do not have a doctrine of creation, if we don't have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we don't have salvation. We have an improper understanding of who God is and who we are. We have an improper understanding of the relationship between man and God. Okay, In the first two chapters of Genesis, we have that laid out, the relationship between man and God. And if we meditate on that, on the truth of those two chapters, it begins to change the way we look at things and how we feel about things. I think probably the greatest challenge in our time, in the Western world, is that we've lost the doctrine of creation. Okay, We just think that the world was always here. And so we think that we can make ourselves in our own image. We can be whoever we want to be. He is the God who made the whole world and everything in it. The first thing you need to know about God is that he created the world and that you are not God. Okay? You're not God and God created the world. Know those two things. Secondly, he is the Lord of the land and the sky. He is the Lord of the land and the sky. Now, we don't use the word Lord anymore except in church these days. Maybe if we lived in the United Kingdom, we would be used to this word. But Lord is the is the ruler. He is the boss. Okay? And so, in this sentence here, he is the Lord of the land and the sky. Paul is pointing his finger to the sovereignty of God. God didn't just make the world. He's also the boss of the world. He gets to say what happens in the world. This is why he's allowed to make the moral law and tell us how to live our lives. This is why he has the right to judge us at the end of time if we don't live according to his law. God created the world. God is sovereign over the world. Another way we want to, we can talk about this is he's the king of the world. Number three, he does not live in temples by human, made by human hands and then jump down one more sentence. He does not need any help from them. He has everything he needs. Well, in some sense, this is, he's, Paul is talking to the ancient people who 
I think had this funny idea that the gods, and they had lots of gods, they, they seemed to think that the gods did need help from people. We would bring food and wine to the temples because they were hungry and they were thirsty. 400 years before Jesus was born, there was a man named Socrates who died. And Socrates was a philosopher who lived in Athens. And one of the important, uh, they're called dialogues, they're like plays that were written about Socrates by Socrates' student, Plato, is called the Euthyphro. And it's a discussion about piety, about people's relationship to religion and to God. And in the Euthyphro, Socrates posits the idea that religion is the art of doing business with the gods. The art of doing business with the gods. Now, I want you to think for a second about that and ask yourself, have you ever thought about your religion as the art of doing business with God? You know, God, I need this thing from you. So, like, you know what, I'll go to church. God, I really need your blessing on my life. So, you know, I'll start reading the Bible. As though we can give things to God and then receive things in return because we've made a little payment into God as though he needs us. Okay, God does not need us. He's independent of us. And our religion should not be doing business with God, thinking that we're putting money into the divine vending machine and out comes the goodies that we want. All right, this is the ancient view. This is the pagan view of the gods. And this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, we worship him, we love him, we honor him, we adore him simply because who he is. All right? And in good times and in bad times, we praise his name. All the time, God is good and we sing his praises. We don't just sing his praises because we think he's going to give us something. We don't just come to church because we think God is going to give us something. Alright, so I think this sentence here is particularly directed at the ancient Greek understanding of the gods. That gods are, you know, these powerful things in the universe that we do business with. And we go to temples to do business with them. Number four, this is at verse 25. God is the one who gives people life, breath, and everything else they need. Life, breath, and everything else they need. Well, Paul has already told us that God is the creator of the universe. But you know, in some special way, God is also the creator of humankind. And so Paul lifts up our special created relationship with him. You know, scripture tells us that God formed Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living soul. There is something special about the creations of humans. All of creation was put into place first in order to sustain human life. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the only part of creation that is made in God's image. We are the only part of creation that is, is, has the breath of life in it received directly from God. And so, yes, God has created the world, but you know what? God has created us, and he gives us everything that we need. 
Number five, let's take a look at verse uh, 26. God began by making one man, and from him he made all the different people who live everywhere in the world. He decided exactly when and where they should live. Now, some people have this idea that, you know, God just sort of made this world. He created it, and then it just it just went off and did all the things that it would do naturally. They just sort of made the clock and wound it up and then walked away from it. What verse 26 tells us is, is that, you know, actually God is involved in the ongoing life of the world. We call this providence. We believe that God created the world, but that God also governs the world. So that what's going on in the world, where the different nations live, and who's living when, and what times they're in power, and even down to the little things of what's going on in our lives, and the day that we're born, and the day that we're, the day that we die, all of those are in God's providence. God is actively involved in what's going on. He decided exactly when and where they should live, which is why it should not surprise us that God has assigned a certain territory to his people in Israel. This is not surprising at all. In fact, God has assigned territories to all of the nations. We tend to only think about the land that's been set aside for Israel, but God also set aside different lands for other people as well. God is providentially in control of all of history. Verse 27, here we're now switching from talking about just God alone to now talking about how God relates to us. Okay, we're important. We're made in God's image. We have the breath of life in us from God. All of creation exists to sustain human society and human well-being. And here's why. God wanted people to look for him. God wanted people to look for him. God wants a relationship with the people that he created in his image. God wants a relationship with the pinnacle of his creation. God wants a relationship with us. He's not indifferent about this. He's not content to make this beautiful world and say, well, you know, if they call me up, that's fine. God wanted people to look for him, and perhaps in looking all around for him, they would find him. That was the hope. Now you notice in, in that second part of that, of that verse that we have a, a reference to a, a natural revelation, to the revelation in nature. You can look around in the world, I, I see the order of how the world works. I'm thinking, well, man, there must have been someone behind this. And then I go looking for him, I inquire about him. But he is not far from any of us. Alright, so essential to God's character and essential to human nature is that we were built for a relationship with God and God craves a relationship with his own people. Now, verse 28. It is through God that we are able to live and do what we do and to be who we are. As our own poets have said, we all come from him. Well, 
You know, there is an essential connection between God and people. There is an essential relationship between the nature of God and the nature of humans. Okay, We puzzle about what it means to be made in the image of God. There's something about us that's like God. And those two natures, they want to be intertwined. They're not content if they're not intertwined. And here's the reality. If we are living our lives disconnected from God, we're living contrary to our nature. Okay. You were made to have a relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you're not being a full human being. Okay? People who are disconnected from God are not fully realizing what it means to be a human being. Even Benjamin Franklin was aware of this, where he understood, and he wasn't a believer the way we would understand a believer, but he understood that, that for human well-being, we needed to be in worship. That's why we've struggled so hard to keep our doors open. So that we would have an opportunity to gather as the people of God and to worship God uh, uh, publicly. God has made us in a certain way that having a relationship with him allows us to be who it is that we've been called to be. I want you to think about right now, what's your relationship to Almighty God? One relationship to Almighty God might be that, well, you know about him. For example, I know who the President of the United States is. I know his name. I've seen his picture. But do I have a relationship with him? Do we know each other? Do we call each other up? Knowing about God and having a relationship with God are not the same thing. Okay, If you know about God but are not calling up on God and calling on God on a regular basis, you don't have a relationship with him yet. All right, I want you to think about that because you're not fully who you were designed to be until you start having that relationship. Don't be content to just know the name of God. I mean, it's good to know the name of God, all right, but don't stop there. You need to have a relationship with God, which we have by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me jump down to verse 30. In the past, people did not understand God, and God overlooked this, but now he's telling everyone in the world to change, to repent, and to turn to him. You know, God operates on a very long timeline, okay? He, he's never going to run out of time, which is why he's able to be patient with us, all right? And he was patient with people waiting for them to come searching for him. But now that he's proclaiming the gospel through the, through the mouth of Paul, the time of waiting is over. Those of you who have heard the gospel, the time of waiting is over. The time of God's forbearance is over. You need to respond to the gospel. You need to say, I get it. Let me live into it. In the past, people did not understand, and God overlooked this, but now he's telling everyone in the world they need to change. All right, so if if you've heard the gospel, if you've heard the word of God proclaimed to you, now's the time to change 
into who it is that we need to be. If you have your Bibles there, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to read a few verses there where Paul develops this a little bit more fully. Romans chapter 1. So you know that the, the book of Romans is the largest presentation of the gospel. It was actually written before the gospels were written, in case you're curious about that. Okay. We learn the gospel from the apostle Paul. And, and in the first 11 chapters, Paul is laying out the need for the gospel. And in chapter one, he's talking about how even people who've, you know, not, have not been under the law, like the Jews, how they need to know the gospel too. Let me read at verse 18. I'm reading from the ESV now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. What Paul is saying here is, is that, you know, the universe shows you that there's a God and that he's a good God and that he's an orderly God and he's a God of law. That's what the universe shows us. And in spite of the fact that we've seen that and we know it at some level, we have suppressed the truth. You might want to ask the question, well, why is it that I would suppress the truth? Why is it that I would look around me at this beautiful world and say, you know, there must be a God behind this world. But I, I mean, I would know that in some part of my mind. Why would I say, ah, oh, I don't really believe in a God. People do this all the time. Like in some part of their heart, they know there's a God, but in another part of their heart, they're like, ah, oh, I, be- I don't want to believe in a God. How come? Well, because if there is a God, then I'm not God. And if there is a God, then I'm going to be responsible to God. And if there is a God, then at one day, at the end of time, there will be a judgment for my life. And so I can pretend, I can suppress the truth, you know, because I just want to live the way I want to live. And in my heart of hearts, I understand the way that I'm living is not in conformity with the creator of this world. Very, very common problem. Paul puts his finger right on it in ancient times, 2,000 years ago. People haven't changed that much. We still, we still do this. There's all kinds of incentives to be an atheist. The greatest incentive to being an atheist, you can live as you please. You can be your own God. But Paul writing is saying that, you know, the time for that foolishness, it's done. Okay? We gotta stop fooling around with this stuff. We've seen, we know enough, we don't know everything about God. We're, we're never gonna know everything about God. Alright? And so, one of the lovely tricks that atheists love to use as well, is they love to appeal to the things that we don't know. Or the things that seem strange about God. Oh, well, we can't know that, therefore there mustn't be a God. Well, that's just illogical. There are lots of things that we don't understand that are real. We don't fully understand God, but we know enough about God to seek Him. And to seek to have a relationship with Him. We know enough, and I believe that anyone who seeks God, that God will be... Will let himself be seen. 
Okay? I don't think there are any seekers who don't meet Christ. I think if people are looking, they're going to find their way to Christ. God will be merciful to those people. Now, in Jesus Christ, we have the fullest revelation of God, and we, and, and, and we have the pathway to salvation that's revealed to us. But even before all of those things, if our hearts are set on having a relationship with the creator of the universe, I think God will honor that. I'm not so worried about people who haven't heard the gospel yet. Because I know that if in their heart they're pursuing God, that God will meet them where they are. I'm not worried about people in other countries or other times who lived before the gospel was able to get there. Because I know that if they if they were uh, responding to the call of God that they see in nature, that God would have honored that and met them where they are. I want you to think about where you are. Where's, where's your relationship with God? And one of the problems that we have as Presbyterians, we live up here a lot. Okay? We love being smart people. Okay? But God wants our heart. He wants your mind too, but he wants your heart. Okay? He wants the center of your being. He wants you to be committed to him. He wants you to be talking to him. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to order your life according to his standards. Let me go back to our Acts verse. Verse 31. He doesn't name Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus here. This is Acts 17, 31, and we'll close with this. We're running out of time. God decided on a day when Jesus will judge all the people in the world in the way that is fair. To do this, he will use a man, Jesus, he chose long ago... And he has proved to everyone that this is the man to do it. He proved it by raising him from the dead. This is the second time in a very brief amount of time that Paul has pointed to the doctrine of the resurrection as central to the Christian message. There's no Christianity without the resurrection. Okay, And by resurrection we mean man is alive, man is dead, Man becomes alive again to never die. Okay? Alright? Jesus was a real man. He really died. He was stone cold, dead in the grave. And then, I can't explain it, but then he stopped being dead. He was raised from the dead. And people continued to see him. Hundreds of people continued to see him. Alright? The apostle Paul met That resurrected Jesus. He had known Jesus in the flesh. He had known Jesus to have been crucified and dead. And then sometime later, I don't know how much later the road to Damascus story is, but sometime later he meets this dead man come back to life. And you know what? That'll flip you around. That will change your perspective on things. And in Paul's case, he went from being a hater of the church to being the biggest promoter of the church. Okay? Total conversion of his life, total commitment to the point of death. In the end, Paul's head will be cut off with a sword on the streets of Rome. And I don't think he cried about it at all because he knew he was going to be with Jesus. And why did he know that? He knew it because he met the resurrected Jesus. Jesus promised that we would be like him. Okay, When we're united to Christ in faith... The perfect righteousness of Christ becomes ours. Look, every one of us here is a sinner. 
Every one of us has lived in a way that doesn't satisfy God's law. Okay, universal condition, all of us, I'm the biggest one here, okay? None of you have sinned more than me, all right? But if we're united to Christ in faith, then the record of Christ becomes my record. And the resurrection of Christ will become my resurrection on that day he returns. One day Jesus is coming back, and the graves are going to open, all right? And those bodies are going to come back to life and be reunited with their spirit, all right? If that's not your hope this morning, if you're not assured that you're in Christ by faith and that you'll be raised from the dead to glory one day, I invite you to get right with God today. Okay? I don't know where you are. I mean, all of you have heard this. I'm not telling you anything new, am I? Okay, this is, we've all heard this before. Alright? But I want, I want you to ask where you stand with regard to this basic teaching of the church. We're here in the earliest days of the church. And this is what the church proclaims. The church doesn't proclaim anything different today. It's all the same message. Where are you with Jesus today? Have you been united to him in faith? Are you trusting him to be your perfect record so that when you stand before the judge, you're going to be okay? Okay. Are you trusting that he was raised from the dead and, and that his resurrection will be your resurrection one day? Why don't you ask yourself that question as we pray together. Father God, we call on you right now. And we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would cast its light into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would show us really where we are. I pray that you give us the faith to believe in Jesus as the one who made this world and the one who redeemed this world and the one who one day will judge this world. Lord Jesus, we have no hope outside of you. I pray that we would not be content just knowing about you. Lord, give us a relationship with you daily, every week. Let us be meeting with you. Father God, we pray that you be honored and glorified in the church, in our lives. And we pray that your kingdom will come and that your will will be done. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, look at that. I remember.